Welcome to the Just Larson Show on innovation and leadership. Today, I'm excited to have Gaurav Garg. Gaurav, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, so you've got a pretty exciting background. Um, will you start with what you do at Wing? And then I want to talk a bit about Sequoia and, and all the things that got you here. Yeah, uh, I'm a venture capitalist. We do early stage investing, which is, um, uh, I, I define in our case, as pre-adoption investing before there are customers, before there are any signals of traction. Uh, most of the venture industry has moved downstream as the amount of money has grown, and very few people are willing to take this kind of risk. Um, and we focus exclusively on B2B companies. We don't do any consumer investing. And it's pretty varied from uh, infrastructure, uh, data infrastructure, applications mostly that uh, are changing the world by using AI. And then a bunch of companies that are, you could think of as bottoms up. I struggle to put a name on it, but it includes marketplaces, it includes crypto tools, it includes developer tools, all these things that are bottoms up adopted. Uh, and some of them tend to be tech light, but they're all B2B. And um, so it's across those sorts of disciplines, pre-adoption, um, and uh, we, they're on our third fund now. And it's all tech, of course. That's exciting. Um, and will you correct me here on my stat? On your website, did I see you've got 22 com 20 companies went public and two have been acquired for over a billion? Yes. That goes back a long time. Sure. Um, and, and just was it 20 had gone public over the billion dollar valuation? Yes. And then the two acquisitions over the billion. Yes. Um, and then uh, can you talk? Well, let's go back to the beginning, building a $500 million a year company even before Sequoia. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Do you want me to start on how it started or just talk about the company briefly? Whatever you want. Okay. Um, I was offered a number of jobs that companies that eventually became prominent to be one of the first five employees in the 95, 96 time frame. Because the web had just exploded, broadband was happening, deregulation had happened, the Cold War was over. There was this, mobile was starting to happen. Uh, there was this incredible confluence of factors that led to the first internet bubble. And I had a lot of ideas. And I actually had two job offers withdrawn because the founder, after talking to me for a month said, you have so many ideas, you should just start your own company. So, I did in 1996. Uh, it was a company in uh, called Redback Networks in um, uh, the broadband infrastructure space. And it effectively connected broadband users to the back of the internet, something we take for granted today. But the way that people expected to do it then was completely flawed. And I can, we, we basically invented the idea of edge routers where you could take a lot of connections and go to the back of the internet. Before that, before that, that concept didn't exist. So um, our timing was perfect. Broadband was starting to happen. Uh, Sequoia was the seed investor. And we went from half a dozen slides to about a half a billion in revenue in four years flat. And it was a, kind of a crazy ride. It was a lot of fun, highly stressful. Uh, I think there were 15 divorces in the first 40 people. Um, I can tell you some funny stories uh, about it as well. 
but um, we went public uh, about two and a half years after we started the company. That's how fast it went. And you could go public with not much revenue because you had such incredible growth rates back then. So um, it's kind of a wild ride. And at some point I just decided I didn't want to be in a company where I, in a place where I spent all my time in rooms with 25 people, which is how I ended up at Sequoia. They said, just come over, hang out, do whatever you want. And uh, so I ended up doing that. So that was the first company. Yeah. And was it 12 years at Sequoia? Yeah. I was in the building full time for about a decade. And then I served on the boards that I had uh, worked on uh, for another five, six years. I mean, basically until many of those companies went public, some of them were acquired. So in each case, almost all of them, I worked on them until the end until there effectively wasn't a company or the company was a year or two post-public. So uh, I, I don't quite remember how I counted, but something like that. And was there a second company you built from zero to 500 million? Yes. I, um, I founded a company called Ruckus Wireless. I had this initial idea. This is a story of hubris. Um, I was already at Sequoia. Part of my role or a big part of my role was to have new ideas, incubate things, start things, and maybe become an investor over time. And they were right about that because I insisted I was a founder. So I started this company called Ruckus Wireless. It was called uh, something else then. And the idea was to move consumer video around the home using Wi-Fi. And this was 20 plus years ago. It was quite a novelty. We take it for granted today. That was really hard to do. And I found these few engineers. We uh, put about a half a million dollars into it. I was a CEO. And we kind of got it to work, but no one really cared. And it took two years. It was really hard. And then eventually I talked a friend of mine, Selena Lowe, into becoming the CEO. And we had to effectively restart the company. And... Uh, took the company into moving video around for telecom people that wanted to do video and encroach on the cable company's turf. And eventually, three, four years later, she decided that she actually wanted to just do Wi-Fi for enterprise. So they cash out the video business and that's how it goes. <laughs> so company went public. It was at around 500 million in revenue. I stayed on the board the whole time. And I was Selena's partner in all of this, along with the two technical founders. And eventually the company was acquired by Brocade, post going public. So quite a journey. And talking about, um, you know, the, the 22 companies uh, over the billion mark, you know, names like Snowflake and Gong, what, um, what are kind of, what are kind of your favorite of those stories or, or ones that stand out maybe even more than other ones for you? My favorite stories are the ones of grit and survival and of difficult founders who over the 10 years I've known them are just transformed human beings as they've had to deal with the realities of building a business. And you literally don't recognize the person at the end relative to the person that started. And they could have started at 25 or they could have started at 45. It doesn't matter. It's such a gut-wrenching experience. And it's that human transformation that I 
um, enjoy the most and actually is what keeps you alive. Can you give us some examples of that transformation? Yeah, I have many. Um, we can just talk about Selena Lowe for a second. Um, Selena is a very good friend of mine. I've known her since 1991. I talked her into doing this in 2004. And her entire background was in marketing and a little bit of product management. And nobody on earth would have believed, and she will tell you this, that she would be a CEO. Uh, and she took this thing with two people and grew it to 1,500 over a long period of time. Um, she had to change business models twice. Um, he would fight me on many things. It was, a, it was like a joke that we were like fighting siblings. Um, he hired some CFO person that I utterly disapproved of and fired him in about four months on our own. And then we hired somebody who I had worked with two times previously and he joined and she called me a month into it to say, you know, I've been in an executive in companies for 18 years. I had no idea what a CFO really did. Thank <laughs> you for persuading me to do this. Or um, uh, another example was when we went from the said consumer video thing or the moving video around the home for telecom to enterprise, I thought that for five or six years, we had been building a home networking company. And she says, what we actually have is a Wi-Fi technology company and we have to go where it's best applied. And she said, it's taken me six months to figure this out, but I have to change the entire business. And we were at 30 million in revenue. There were a lot of people doing something and we completely changed. That is really hard to do. We had to lay off half the company and we did it intentionally. It was not going badly, but we did it intentionally. And it was hard for me to accept. And she literally shouted at me because I, I was not willing to listen the first time she explained this to me. Uh, but that's the... Just the determination to make, to to have those decisions, to do it in a considered way, the collaboration uh, that you have with the founder, that's my favorite part. And I have other stories, but that, that that's one example. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about uh, both, you know, doing yourself and observing it as a investor and board member and advisor. Um, can we talk about some of your zero to billion lessons? For, for entrepreneurs that might be listening today? The first thing I'd say is every single company I've been involved with in that process, uh, there have been multiple existential moments, like the one I just described. The second thing is um, the word, it takes 10 years to get to a billion dollars in revenue, almost invariably. It's highly, the Googles, even Google took six years. And those are, as we know, extremely rare. The world changes in those 10 years. You go from being really narrow and deep to, as a founder and CEO, having to become really broad and to realize that you are selling to customers, to people, and to investors. And you need time to think because you are the strategist. So you need to spend time evenly across all of those four. You are the chief recruiting officer. You are the chief person raising money. You are the chief thinker, right? And you are needed with customers. So you have to 
leave time for all of these things. And you go from being really good at one thing to having to develop all of these skills. And what do you need for that? You need a learning mindset. And this is the thing people forget. Um, all founders walk into these things wanting to do everything from first principles. If they don't, they're not going to be great founders. They have to have that belief in themselves and in the logic. But you have to also move to a place where you listen to everybody around you and then make your decision because you have the most context of anybody. So it's all of these things. It's the learning mindset. It's the understanding the environment changes. How do you manage your time? How do you evolve? Um, you know, you're also the person that cares the most. Caring intensely is incredibly important. You take everything personally, but you have to learn how to put on a face where people don't get scared, but are energized and driven by your intensity as opposed to what sometimes happens. I mean, 25 years ago, whatever it was, you know, I threw a pen at the wall once and the ink splattered all over the wall because I was really frustrated about something. And you have to care that intensely, but learn how to manage that energy and direct it. Um, so the other thing is that's a little scary. I, I have this belief that you have to insert hierarchy at seven people. You can have a flat structure at six, but at seven, you have hierarchy. And I see this in boards. I see this in lots of places. And in fact, I believe that the average white collar manager manages five people today. And that's across the entire infrastructure. So it's actually four, um, oh, sorry, four and a half. But what that means is that every time a company grows four and a half, you have to insert another layer of management. And many people cannot scale beyond two levels of management. So somebody that was an individual contributor, it's hard for them to scale. Okay, they can be a manager, they can be one level up, but to get to the third level up, where you're managing two levels behind you, it it's, doesn't happen often. So depending on the velocity of the growth of the company, you have to reboot the management team. And that is a really hard choice to make because People have done well to get you there. You feel like you owe them, but actually they're not going to scale to the next 5X. So how do you identify that? How do you give people enough oxygen that they can grow into the role versus deciding who you can or cannot keep? And those are really hard choices. And we're all human. We're tribal. Uh, but those sorts of things really cause lots of problems. And they, 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 yeah, with scale, it's mostly about managing people and dealing with people. As I said, I was tired of being in rooms of 25 people 80% of my life in a public company, and you have to avoid that fate somehow. Bunch of random things, but I hope that was helpful. I can amplify on anything you want. Uh, well, let's start with the last one there. Um, so let's say we've got a founder, the business is, you know, they've got such good product market fit, the revenues are climbing fast enough that they're getting to this point where they're having three and four layers of management like you're talking about or more. Um, what kind of a decision tree would you give them or what kind of questions would you have them ask themselves as they're considering, is this person going to be able to make it or do they need to be replaced? It's going to sound a little cold, but it's a little statistical. It's like in our experience, statistically, 
you are replacing one person every four to six months. So who are the two or three people you're most worried about and why? And what are you going to track to uh, track to make a determination on whether you need to make an upgrade? And realize that it's going to take four to six months to find somebody. So you either need a succession plan from within the building or you need to start talking to people casually outside without doing a search in case something goes bump in the night. So, for example, for a salesperson, head of sales, you may have the following conundrum. Uh, in the beginning, you need somebody that is pretty regional, right? Because you're not managing a big team. You are doing product market fit discovery. It needs to be somebody that really knows how to sell on their own and manage a team of half a dozen people. Eventually, it transitions into an entirely recruiting discipline, eventually transitions into an entire counting discipline. Counting is hard for many people because you have to make really tough choices um, when you start talking about sales productivity and that is a place where the person that recruited a lot of great folks that followed that sales leader off a cliff, that's very tribal. But when you get to accounting discipline, you have to decide how to expand based on the numbers, based on changes in sales productivity. And that's a completely different mental mindset. So the tribal leader may not be appropriate for the accounting discipline. And, um, you know, where do you, take the inspiration that the sales leader has as the chief salesperson in the company and where does it matter most? Uh, and what do you need? Is this a channel business? There's so many factors, but in a fast-growing company, uh, very rarely do you have a Chris Tegnan that has scaled through so many periods of growth. I don't remember when Chris joined, but even Chris would tell you, I mean, it's amazing that he has scaled this much, and it's a credit. And he's so humble. One of my favorite people. So this is the head of sales at uh, at Southlake. So we would never have expected he could scale to this level. Oh my God, we would never have expected Southlake would get to this level, right? So that is extremely rare. But that's a very concrete example of factors that would make you make changes along the way. And it's not that the salesperson is a bad person; they're just a fit for a certain scale or a certain model every every sentence you say makes me come up with three more questions i got my fingers crossed trying to remember Please. what questions are. okay Please. so what i want to go back to is this idea of taking in all the advice from all these people talking on strategy and then you who has the most context has to make the decision and my question is if you have any guidance of like questions ceos should be asking themselves uh, when it's like I feel like there's this balance beam between if everyone else saw what you saw, they would be the visionary running this company and they would need you, right? And so there's some aspects of like, there's something you see that others don't see. That's why you're in charge. And then there's the other side of the balance beam where it's like, like at sometimes it feels like you have to be bold and make the decision, even though, because you know, it's what's, what's supposed to happen even though everyone else can't see what you see yet. And then there's this other side of like, 
Other times, you need the humility to realize you're just daydreaming, and that is not in the realm of possibilities, and you need to take advice. And I ha I'm desperate for advice on how to navigate that balance beam, uh, if you have any thoughts. It's a really nuanced question, and it starts with um, being bold, having a vision, being intellectually honest, having a learning mindset on the part of the founder. And I, uh, this notion that the founder is infallible is nonsense. That's not possible. In fact, you have to have a learning mindset and humility. Otherwise, you're not going to evolve. And adaptation is the greatest form of survival. We've seen that real time in the last two and a half years. So how can you be infallible at the start? It makes no sense. You know, are we all perfect without vaccines? No, you know, we're, we're adapting ourselves. So, so, so to get to your question, um, building advisors, whether it's on a board, whether it's trusted people within the company is an art form. And what you want to look for is to fill in the gaps that you have. Right? I don't know anything about marketing. Let me find a marketing person to be on the board or an incredible marketer inside the company. Uh, I don't know anything about finance. I don't know anything about Wall Street, whatever it is. You want to bring people in that can help you with that because they will immediately teach you how to look at the problem, what questions to ask, and broaden your perspective. Great founders are incredible learners, and they will take what you say to them and come back to you within one or two board meetings in a way that you never thought was possible. And it's a thrill for me as a board member. I'm giving them some, I'm asking them some questions and they come back to me in this unique way that I've never seen before and add an idea it's percentile performance. And that's just fantastic. So uh, as a founder, you, you want to surround yourself with people Listen, adapt the advice to what you're doing. Understand what is completely generic advice versus advice from people that... Uh, let, let me put it another way. As an advisor, if I know 1% of what the founder does, that's really bad. If I know half of the what the founder does, then why are they there? So ideally, I should know somewhere like some geometric mean between them, 10 to 20%, so I can contextualize my advice but then they make the decision, right? And I find that the decisions that founder makes, if they have founders make, if the person has a good board, um, people are actually very willing to accept. It may not be exactly what I want, but I actually understand. And, and uh, it's a question of who's talking to them, all of the voices in the room, and making a decision in the wake of uncertainty that is going to be slightly bold, but you can kind of see the game theory behind how it could work when you look towards three moves ahead. It's not perfect. It's not 100%. But if you look towards three moves ahead, you kind of understand the game theory of each of the consequences of those decisions. It's a fairly decent chance it's going to work out. Uh, so I, uh, other things I'd say is realize that any, to, any time, only two or three things matter in what the company is doing over the next year. 
how do you identify those and have absolute ruthless focus on them? Most, most management teams or people cannot focus on more than three, four things at a time. They cannot execute on it. So, you know, something like the iPhone where you had to execute in 16 different dimensions can only be done in a company like that with someone like Steve Jobs who ruled by, you know, fiat. But there are very few people like that. And so, um, so yeah, it's just the focus. It's the um, evaluating the uncertainty, playing it out a few moves and making the decision. Well, that really leads me to my next question. And I feel like you've answered it partially already, but I want to see what else you would add to it. It's this idea of, um, you know, it's so common that even the entrepreneurs who are successful can only scale so far and then the VCs ever have to bring in a professional CEO or, or something like this. When you think about a founder who wants to go all the way and um, they want, you know, they want the ultimate learning mindset and they want to cultivate like that deep humility paired with the boldness you're talking about and they want to scale themselves to the billion or more. Do you have any thoughts or any recommendations of, of how to master that level of learning mindset? It's very human. How do you balance that intensity, the focus, with the scale and having perfect people management skills? It's just not possible. So uh, I have this, uh, I, I got this from uh, uh, one of the bankers, strangely enough, um, who may or may not want to be named. But if you think of a scale of risk-taking or product awareness, but I'd say kind of risk-taking versus management skills. And it's a two-by-two two chart, right? Steve Jobs, extreme risk-taker, huge product awareness. Nobody would accuse Steve Jobs of having great EQ and being, being an incredible manager in the way that we think of a manager. Whereas... The CEO of GE, whatever, Jeff Melt or somebody, most of the time, not Neutron Jack, you would think of being as a great manager. Are there people that are both? That's extremely rare. And I think you have to identify where you are on the spectrum and where you are developing towards, but also understand who you are and build a management team around you to complement you so you, you have enough of a balance. But it's really hard to take yourself and be able to do both effectively. There's just, and remember, we're not talking about whether you're better at the 50th or 75th percentile. You have to be at the 90th, 99th percentile on both scales. In some cases at 99.9. .9. And that's, that's just really hard. I mean, I think of people um, like maybe Sheryl Sandberg, you know, in her heyday. The way Cheryl would manage it, you just didn't want her to disappoint her. So she was demanding without being obnoxious, right? And, mm -hmm. and at least that's what I hear. I don't know her at all. But there's, there's maybe a small number of people that are like that. Well, okay, then I'm going to change my question. <laughs> uh, what if you know you're more of the Steve Jobs type and as much as you wish you could be the manager too, and as much as you're trying to work on yourself there, you're honest that you probably need to hire. You probably need to hire for those holes. Like mm -hmm. energy is better spent being the 
the crazy guy with the crazy being the product guy, being the product be, person, being like the intense product person. And you've yes. decided like time is better spent doubling down on that instead yes. of it's kind of like the like Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing baseball. Why don't we all figure out mm -hmm. what our basketball is and do that? Right. Mm -hmm. When it comes to filling the holes, especially knowing that it's can be very tough for staff to have this amazing visionary that might be very well respected, that's that's intense and is not as great at being so um, connected and lovey-dovey with the staff. And, and, mm -hmm. and do you have any thoughts for, for navigating that issue? Because you need to win the hearts and minds of that staff. Yeah, hire the, the right people that are doing most of the lifting. And then you can be the intense and inspirational leader. And when everyone's going to give you a call pass for having that intensity show up every now and then, because they don't, most people want to be led. And if you are pointing the way forward, people will accept the intensity. What gets hard is dealing with it every day and then going to that intense person every day for small little problems. That's really hard. Most problems, there's so many mundane things that managers can do and take off your plate. So your energy is better reserved for what is strategic, where people are actually plunging into uncertainty and want to see that, that leadership, that inspiration, that intensity. So hiring people, uh, you know, Steve Jobs famously hired Tim Cook, right? That's just using the example that we're talking about. And in fact, at that time, if you looked at the management team in Apple, there were a bunch of product people. And then there was a CFO and the marketing guy and everything else was under Tim Cook. You never saw all those people, right? It just did not look like a normal management team. There were like four or five product and engineering people in the top 10 that were on the website. And that was a reflection of who Steve was. And I don't know what it's like now, but... Uh, and actually, I, I think phenomenal managers or operational people love working for great founders because they know they have product market fit. They know they have leadership. They know someone who can look around look through two corners, looking into the future. And I think it works really well. I've seen it many times. And I also say one thing I have, I personally have a lot of difficulty getting rid of founders. Um, I, I have this rule of thumb, which is if I'm incredibly grumpy for three years, it has to be three years. Then I go, the CEO goes or the company goes. And two, at two years, I need to start having the conversation. So I'm not like being intellectually dishonest. I actually start talking to the person. Look, I've been grumpy for a long time. It's been two years. I'm not, I mean, this is real. We've watched this for two years. Something's got to change. And otherwise, what am I doing here? What's the point? Or frankly, what are you doing here? Or maybe this company doesn't need to exist. And it's not a nice conversation to have, but there are many stakeholders, lots of people have put their lives at, you know, on hold for it. There are other investors. You just owe it to the whole community of people and investors and customers to uh, not let them down. I really enjoy that answer. And I'm going to have this transcribed. Actually, I'm going to put you in, I'm, I'm writing books. I say I'm writing books. I'm having books written. Uh, but I think you're, I think you're going to be in two books. Okay. So oh, I'm doing on. a series where I'm transcribing <laughs> all the episodes of our guests who've done zero to billion. Right. And then, 
<laughs> it's funny because this is just my interview yesterday. I had a guy named George Molokal on who uh, runs a $7 billion fund in Chicago called Alcor Fund. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's from India, grew up in South India, went to Oxford, um, is really specialized in doing business across borders. He's in like 135 countries, surprisingly mm. in a lot of different industries, mm. oil and gas, food, these different things. And he's like, oh, this works really well in India. So we took it to Indonesia and then to Australia and then to, you know, and um, I, I told him like on this show, I get, I'm, I get such amazing uh, entrepreneurs and investors from India that I'm going to transcribe all of you guys and have a book called like uh, Indian Geniuses or something. So I'm going to have to send it to you and get your, get your feedback. I, I do want to diverge for one second. Um, you, did you go to UW? Where did, where did you go to university? No, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Oh, okay. There okay. are 26 universities in the country with the name Washington in their name, unfortunately. So okay. it's, it's a bit of a marketing problem. I'll agree. Uh, where did you grow up in India? I grew up in a city called Ahmedabad in Gujarat. And I came and to America. what part of the country is that? It's in the West. Okay. It's uh, the, it's the uh, birthplace of Mahatma Gandhi and Mamad Ali Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan, uh, or at least where he was from, and the current prime minister. But not many people know about it for some reason. Oh, really? Um, I'm interested what advantages you think it gave you to grow up there. My, mother's, my mother came from a business family. They were quite wealthy. My father was a professor. So I was always the poorest kid in the family. I was a, that's actually, actually true. And I was definitely in the top, top, bottom one third of the school that I went to, the high school, which was a Jesuit school. And it, it, you know, you just like look around at all of this. When I came to America at age 18, it was not like food was a problem you know, at all, or we had a refrigerator, but we did not own a TV, we did not own a car. And one of my friends would wear a pair of jeans to school every day. And I asked him, how do you do this and wash them? You know, nobody had washers and dryers. How do you wash them every day and show up in the morning? He looks at me, he says, I have three pairs of jeans. It would have never occurred to me that somebody would have three pairs of jeans. Like all my clothes would fit in, you know, like a bag that big. So it was not just that, but it was also seeing all these people around me that kind of really lit a fire under me that this was, um, that there, there was a lot to aspire to. That was part one. Part two was my father had a PhD, did his PhD at UC Berkeley, and he was a professor of organizational behavior at the business school. So the conversations around the table were very broad-based. And I went to a Jesuit school, as I said, but the education was very broad-based in some fashion. Uh, and it, it kind of really instills that constant intellectual curiosity that all of us need to have. And then the third thing was, honestly, coming to America, um, within three months, you realize that you're in a system where effort, the learning mindset, um, well, who you are doesn't matter. You know, if you get placed in the right environment, um, you can really take advantage of it. And I, I saw that at university, and it certainly is true around here. And perhaps it's become, as we become more industrialized, it's become uh, a little bit 
more tribal than it should be. But in general, uh, as you're aware, you know, founders come from all sorts of backgrounds. Many of them speak English badly. I mean, I've been involved with incredible founders who have really bad grammar and heavy accents and that have done really well. And that is a disadvantage in American society, whether or not you like it. But at least, you know, the opportunity does exist if you have uh, the drive and the risk-taking abilities and, and the education. So all, all of those things mattered. And, and uh, yeah, it's something super personal to me, but we're still here charging the hill. I love it. I... I grew up in Canada and I love Canada and there's great things about Canada. And I think the U.S. is the best country in the world for the same reasons you just said. Yeah. This is part of the reason I'm still doing early stage investing. That uh, it's an addiction, you know, the, the charging the hill uh, with great uncertainty and watching these young people grow up, as I said, over 10 years, that's the greatest thrill of all. I really like that answer. Uh, okay, maybe... As we're kind of winding down here, um, I'm interested, you know, I, I have so many people on this show and some people have multi-million dollar businesses and some of them have hundred million dollar businesses and some of them have, you know, I had Carl Alomar, they got DigitalOcean to 15 billion, you know, or had the CEO of $15 billion Trammell Crow on the show. And, and all these, I get to see these different ranges and I get to see the mindsets in common between the different ones. And, um, those folks at the very highest levels, um, you guys say a lot of the same things. You say humility, obsession with the customer's problem, uh, like, like they never stop working on that product market fit. Like everybody says product market fit. And then those people at your level, they live it. It's like this. They're saying the same thing. They just live it so much harder than the other people I get to interview. When you think about true, genuine product market fit or getting to those kind of levels, what, what kind of principles would you have for the rest of us to, on how to just push deeper and, and, and like continually refine to better and better product market fit? Or, or just what kind of theories do you have at all about having what you want so awesome people can't get enough of it? It's experimentation and measurement, right? And I don't have a clear metric for product market fit. Actually, I do. But everything just gets easier. Whatever you're doing just gets easier. So how do you measure that? And um, one way I have of doing it is if you watch the sales productivity curve for whatever effort you're putting into customer acquisition, um, you know, you invest in people or you invest in media or whatever it is, it takes a little bit of time to develop. So there's some sales productivity curve from the time you invest till their returns, right? And if that curve starts inflecting upwards, life's getting easier because for the same amount put in, you're getting more dollars back. If it goes downwards, there's something wrong. The reality is that every stage of company, as you grow, there are periods where it inflects upwards, where it doesn't go up, and then it starts to drop. It's just an inevitable cycle. Every time it starts to drop, you got to figure out what do I do to make it go back up? And you're running experiments again. So it's a continuous cycle of experimentation to see what to do. Sometimes you run out of oxygen in the way you are selling something to, in, in the channel, in the product, et cetera. 
So you have to come up with some new method to keep growing the company. So that's another experiment. So for me, it's a lot of experimentation and continuous measurement. And um, the mistake people make is to oversample, to overdo it. They look backwards at revenue. Um, even these notions of the magic number to me are flawed because if a company, if you can take a new salesperson and they can do $10 million a year in four quarters, but zero in the first two quarters, what should you do? You should hire like crazy because they're going to be incredibly productive in four quarters. And um, it doesn't matter what the magic number is, but the reality is if you hire 100 people, you won't get that. So you have to hire a bunch, see what's happening, and then hire more, or you, you know, you're going to change a few things. So for me, um, um, there are other things with product market fit that are earlier, obviously, which is don't have happy years, have a statistic sampling of at least 20 customers, and eventually 20 customers uh, a quarter. Um, I, I don't think the first 20 customers are about product market fit uh, at say for $2 million, however you want to think about it. It's the 2 million to 20 million that's really about general availability. Can a generic person sell this thing as opposed to the three people that live in the founder's office? And uh, I don't know. I mean, those are very maybe sales-oriented answers, but... Uh, I like them. I, I mean... I feel like entrepreneurship is a lot about sales. So. And listening to the customer, exactly, as you said, product market fit. Well, listen, we've covered a lot of subjects here. Um, well, let's start with this. If people want to find out more about Wing, if they want to connect with you, if they want to find out about portfolio companies, wh where should we send people online? We have a website, wing.vc. And honestly, um, people can just reach out to me as well. So, Just on LinkedIn or where's best? Yeah, LinkedIn would be great. And uh, yeah, LinkedIn would be great. Okay, great. Um, well, we covered a lot of subjects here. What's something we didn't cover that you'd like to leave with? We enjoy, and I enjoy, uh, helping people do their best work. And I hope that came through in all of this. And um, we're not arrogant enough to believe, or we are humble enough to know they had the founders driving the bus. We are humble enough to realize that what they've created has real value. But what we can help them do is to increase the value by 10x through by helping them bring people on, by adding perspective, by being humble ourselves. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, just... What we enjoy most is having people make the best of their potential. And that should be an sort of all. Well, maybe to close then, let's repeat what we started off with. Who, who is the ideal founder that you want to hear from that, that you want inquiring at VC of, for potential funding? Wow. B2B. There's so, there's so many pre acquisition. Sure. But yeah. I'm saying, what are so, the, what is the, what's the yeah, yeah, What are the characteristics? Um, Pre-adoption, giant markets, interesting margin structure. Uh, we love founders that are good at uh, the narrative to customers, to people, and to investors. Just makes our lives a lot easier and they're much more likely to succeed. We are interested in well, um, 
data infrastructure. We're interested in AI applications. And we're also interested in, you know, product-led growth and bottoms-up companies that are doing some significant disruption. Uh, so people are all of those areas. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks again for doing this. Thank you. What a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everyone.